is that gut flora nourishes the cells that line the gastrointestinal tract. Mm -hmm. And if those cells are nourished, they effectively can block things like, for instance, when, when uh, wheat breaks down, it breaks down to glutomorphine. Mm -hmm. And those healthy cells can knock off the morphine. But if the cell's not getting nourishment, the morphine can't get knocked off. The morphine gets into the blood and it goes to the opiate receptor sites in the brain. You're listening to Healthline, where you receive inspiring messages and helpful health tips. For over two decades, Modern Mana has empowered individuals to achieve a healthy lifestyle, from health expos and detox programs to TV and radio shows. If you are ready to improve your health, then let's get started. It is my pleasure to introduce you to an expert in the field of natural self-healing and holistic wellness. Barbara O'Neill is not only an author, educator, qualified naturopath and nutritionist, but also an international speaker who has dedicated her life to promoting good health and natural healing. With a wealth of knowledge and experience, Barbara is renowned for her expertise in empowering individuals to take control of their well-being. She firmly believes in providing the body with optimum conditions to heal itself. And her teachings revolve around fostering a holistic approach to health that encompasses mind, body, and spirit. Her holistic approach emphasizes the importance of natural remedies, nutrition, and lifestyle choices, and optimizing health outcomes for individuals for all ages. So thank you so much for coming on today. It's my pleasure. So for our first question, we wanted to ask you to provide a brief overview of the role of the large and small intestine. It's a long journey going through the gastrointestinal tract. <laughs> starts at the mouth, finishes at the other end. And the interesting thing about, well, there are many interesting things, but it's a hollow tube. Mm -hmm. So anything that goes in there is not part of you or me until it is broken down and taken out of the gut and into the blood. Because Leviticus uh, 17.11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the blood is the life because of partly the nutrients that it receives from the gastrointestinal tract. So understanding this part of our body is imperative if we want good health. And it's probably about, well, some say eight metres long, some, some are verging to 10, to 10 metres long, starts at the mouth. So what we do in our mouth is is you know, so important because it affects all the way down. So we choose what goes in, we choose when it goes in, we choose how often it goes in, we choose how much goes in, and we also choose the environment in the environment of entry. Ellen White says, cast off care and anxious thought when you sit to dine. So all of those affect the whole way down the gastrointestinal tract. But what you've specifically asked me is to pass through the mouth, the esophagus, into the stomach, and then we come through the pyloric sphincter, which is the little valve at the bottom of the stomach, into the first part of the small intestine, which is the duodenum. And in the duodenum, you've got the uh, liver via the gallbladder and the, 
the 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 gall duct coming into the neck of the pancreas, and so bile comes in there for the emuls to emulsify the fats or the polyunsaturated fats, and then you've got the pancreas, and from the pancreas comes quite a few things. Uh, sodium bicarbonate is released to alkalize the contents as it comes out of the stomach because the stomach is and should be quite acid. You've also got enzymes that finalize starch digestion. It started in the mouth. You've also got enzymes that finalize protein digestion, and that began in the stomach. You've also got enzymes that finalize fat digestion after the bile's had its work. And so a lot happens there. And when you realize this, the pancreas is one of the main organs of digestion, often under, under uh, noticed, so to speak. But halfway down the small intestine, all the nutrients are absorbed. So after that halfway point, all that is left really is the insoluble fiber, and the insoluble fiber is also very important because when we come to the large intestine or the colon, that fiber stimulates peristalsis and that fiber also does a lovely cleaning job at cleaning out all the little grooves and, and necks that, that happen in that large, large colon. What comes out of the small intestine and goes into the large intestine is mostly liquid. So one of the Main functions also of the large intestine is to take water out so stools are formed so we can pass with ease. But something very important happens in the last part of the small intestine. So out of the small intestine and into the large intestine, there's a double-layered valve called the ileocecal valve. And it's a double-layered valve because we don't want anything from the large intestine going back into the small but it's called the ileum, and that is where our B12 is absorbed. And B12 is a hot subject. Some say you can't get B12 from uh, vegetables, and that's not quite true because we know that in fruits, vegetables, nuts and grains and legumes, God has put all the nutrients that we need. And the B12 is a very uh, misunderstood vitamin and is really more a bacteria than a vitamin. And let me give you the quick story of that because this is very pertinent to our small intestine and I'm going to use my fingers. So let's say this is B12. It's bound up with an R protein in food. And when it comes into the stomach, hydrochloric acid releases the R protein and the B12. And so R protein goes out of the picture now. And in the parietal glands of the stomach, the intrinsic factor is released. And the intrinsic factor is very important in the absorption of B12. But these two travel together all through the small intestine and coming near the ileum, they connect because B12 cannot be absorbed without the intrinsic factor. And then when it's absorbed, it's absorbed into the enterohepatic circulation. <laughs> Sounds like a long word, but hepatic means liver. So there's a circulatory uh, between the ileum and the liver, and it keeps the B12 in circulation until the body needs it. And so most people are low B12, 
number one, because their stomach isn't working properly. Maybe they eat all day long. Maybe they drink with their meals. Maybe they're stressed with their meals. And so the parietal glands aren't releasing sufficient hydrochloric acid to release the R protein from B12. And those same parietal glands are the ones that release the intrinsic factor. And so when someone presents with a low B12, I look at stomach. Let's boost stomach function so that you can release the B12 so that you can release the intrinsic factor so that it can be absorbed. Proverbs 14 verse 6 says, knowledge is easy to him that understands. So forgive me when I have to keep going into explaining things <laughs> because when you understand them, you automatically now know what to do basically. Now, there is, bat, there is B12 in the large intestine and there are thoughts that there might be a bit of B12 in the last part of the small intestine, but that's really not applicable because as you go back to the stomach, you need the hydrochloric acid to release it. And Dr. Neil Nedley in his book, Proof Positive, he has research, he quotes research in there that shows that we can get B12 from organically grown root vegetables. We can get B12 from picking an apple off a tree and eating it because it's an airborne bacteria. So when I'm somewhere and we're picking apples off the tree and they want to scrub them, I said, oh, no, don't, don't scrub them. Just eat them. <laughs> they haven't got dirt on them. They haven't got manure on them. Oh, yes, I'd wash them then. So it's just understanding those things. So, so that's from the small to the large intestine. And really one of the main functions of the large intestine is just to to move things through and uh, and eventually evacuate. Yeah, and for proper absorption of nutrients. Um, so I'm curious, oh, we've been looking into individuals who have certain genetic predispositions, um, specifically individuals who have the MTHFR gene mutation and they're unable to, the body is unable to convert or create the enzyme to convert key nutrients such as B12 to the activated form. So do you find uh, just getting B12 in vegetation or supplementing is enough? Um, do you have anything you can share regarding that? Uh, certainly. And remember, genetics may load the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. <laughs> and, of course, lifestyle is something we have total control over. It's an area called epigenetics, the effect of lifestyle on the genes. Most B12 supplements are sublingual, which means that they're absorbed under the tongue, which means they don't need the hydrochloric acid and they don't need the intrinsic factor. And, you know, of course, that, that is important for someone who we have to work on their stomach. Now, the research shows that after the age of 40, People, uh, people's hydrochloric acid is not as strong. But I, I agree with that in a way, but I want to know why. And I believe it's because people are eating all day long, people are stressing, people are eating their largest meal at the end of the day, they're not chewing properly. You know, we've forgotten how to chew. And one of the problems is that babies are fed slop instead of food. Have you noticed? <laughs> I never fed my baby slop. In fact, I didn't even feed my babies. 
<laughs> I just breastfed them until they had a set of teeth and then I gave them an apple. <laughs> and guess what? They didn't choke <laughs> because they learned to chew. And this chewing process, unfortunately, has been forgotten. And so, as you can see, these are things we can work on. And Ellen White says in page 127 of the Ministry of Healing, the only hope of better things is the education of people in the right principles. I read the story uh, or the account of a Scottish dentist, and he thinks most teeth problems today because people don't chew. Babies are fed this pureed stuff. <laughs> but if people waited until babies had teeth and gave them solid food, uh, then they chew. So, again, we're going way back. We're going way back. But the good news is we can rewire our brain and we can teach ourselves to chew. My husband does everything fast. He drives fast. Everything. There's, there's no waiting around for Michael. And he also eats very fast. <laughs> yeah. And so I often touch his wrist at the meal and smile and he knows straight away that it's a very gentle reminder, <gasps> slow down. Yeah, it's hard because we're creatures of habit, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, it we sounds are. like we need to go back to school and learn how to properly eat. Oh, yes. You know? Oh, yes. In fact, I often say there's no teeth in the stomach. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, there are only in the mouth. <laughs> I know I've heard you lecture on um, the salivary amylase and... Uh, the other enzymes that help break down starches and you mentioned, and I read this too in a, a book by a naturopath that you shouldn't be giving babies grains until they start molars no. or a full set of teeth. Can you extrapolate more on that? Yeah, that um, I, I have to tell you, and you can't speak for long without, without talking about the great deceiver. <laughs> Revelation... Um, in 12 verse 9, it says he's deceived the whole world, even in the way we feed our babies. And, and that affects the whole of the life. You see, the first teeth we get are four at the top and four at the bottom, and they're called milk teeth. Now, isn't that interesting? Milk teeth. And you know why they're called milk teeth? Because that's all babies should have, milk. But it's also taste time. And so a baby should be able to sit. A baby should be able to feed themselves and a baby should have a few teeth. And that's when you give them a piece of cucumber, a piece of celery, a piece of apple. And you will find that they're very proficient at coughing up a lump if a lump goes down. But when babies are fed slop and they lie down while they're fed this slop, you know, they're the ones that are more likely to choke. There's a big difference between gagging and choking. Gagging, they make a lot of noise and it pops out. <laughs> and I think that's why a lot of parents are scared to give their baby solid food. But it does, it does not hurt them. It does not hurt them. The next teeth that come, and I guess they, my baby's first teeth came about seven and a half months, about seven and a half months they're sitting and, and they, they're very social. They like to do what you do. So they sit them in a high chair and you give them a piece of apple and by the end of your meal, they're barely through that piece of apple. Some bits have gone in, some bits have gone on the floor. See, it's taste time. And then probably between 14, sometimes 22 months of age, the molars come through. Now, the molars come through here, and they're the grinders. And we grind grain. <laughs> and 
the glands in the mouth do not release generous amounts of tylen, and that's the salivary amylase that breaks down starch. So babies should not have any starch. So there's your breads, your biscuits, your, what you call them, cookies, uh, cereals, pastas. In fact, even legumes, they have, they have some carbohydrates. I didn't give my babies any of those things until the molars were fully through. So my son, James, he's 45 now. He looks like a bodybuilder, very well built. He's a musician, he's a master builder, he's an artist, so obviously the brain and the body developed well, and yet he ate no food till he was 16 months of age. He was just not interested. And I always felt that my baby would indicate what to do. And some people say, but my baby is grabbing for food. I said, they'll grab for anything. They're ready for food. But we have intelligence that knows when the baby grabs for food, you, you give them a piece of apple. I'm sure. Of and that. and th this affects us now today, how we were fed back then. Yeah. I'm sure a burning follow-up question some people may be wondering is, what if the mother's milk supply starts to diminish? I guess that's another thing you'd have to investigate. Well, um, or something to remember. Something to remember with the breasts is it's just uh, demand and supply. The more the baby's on the breast, the more milk will be made. So my daughter Emma, she had twins. They're eighteen now, and she breastfed both of those twins and gave them no food till they were sixteen months of age. So these little toddlers were running around the house and they'd never tasted food. She said, one's got teeth and the other hasn't, so I'm not giving it to one without the other. <laughs> and so that's a lot of milk that woman made. And she used to drive along the car with a, a tube going into a, a two-litre bottle. <laughs> she drank a lot of water. Wow. She drank a lot of water. And I know myself, whenever my baby had a fever, I used to just pop them on even whenever they wanted, when they had a fever, every half hour, I wanted them to get that liquid. Well, 24 hours later, well, I had a lot of milk <laughs> because there'd been all that stimulation. So if a woman can remember that, the more stimulation to that nipple, the more milk will be made. So if a woman feels that her milk supply is low, she can just keep popping the baby on, even every half hour, every hour. Now, as a rule, I would feed my babies an average of three hours. Every three hours, I would feed my babies. If they had a cold, a fever, I might pop them on a little bit more. What you have to remember, it's not the odd day you do it and the odd day you don't. It's what you do every day that matters. Yeah. So even though we do give our babies breaks, you know, to build up that milk supply, you might stimulate a little bit more. One thing that can really inhibit the milk supply is stress. Mm -hmm. So if, if a woman is stressed out, that, that can certainly uh, affect her milk supply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. I wanted to ask, um, you mentioned about B12 and helping to create a good environment in the stomach. So what are some things that you do to help improve stomach um, efficiency. So I, I know you've talked okay. about not drinking with your meals and that's... Yeah. There are certainly some rules that govern the stomach. 
and adherence to these rules will will give a happy stomach. We should be drinking between meals. So we usually stop about half an hour before the meal and resume about an hour and a half to two hours after the meal. If a guest says to me, I've just eaten my meal and I'm so thirsty, I say, well, just have a mouthful. But my next question is, did you drink much water before the meal? Oh, I forgot. So if someone's thirsty after a meal, it's a clear sign that they sat to eat dehydrated. So I say to mothers, an hour, half an hour before the meal, take the glasses of water around to the children. Because you watch, if a child does not drink before the meal, the first thing they're asking for, even during the meal, is water. So we need to think for our children. Their brains aren't fully developed, remember. <laughs> and if my child said, I don't want to drink water, I'd say, oh, I'm so sorry, sweetheart, you can't have lunch. So they quickly learned. <laughs> but, but the mother starts early. I had one son and, oh, it was hard to get him to drink. So I'd read him a story. And I wouldn't turn the page unless he'd had a mouthful of water. And then I'd read the story and, oh, oh mouthful of water, I can turn the page. You have little ways that you encourage them to, to drink water. So it's important not to drink with the meals. It's also important to have most of your food at your breakfast and lunch. Our stomach is better prepared for food in the morning and in the middle of the day than at the end of the day. See, when the sun goes down, our body knows it and everything starts to slow down, including digestion. Mm -hmm. And so the habit of drinking uh, with the meals, the habit of eating the largest meal at the end of the day, these are things that are contributing to depletion of hydrochloric acid. So depletion of hydrochloric acid in, in late, later life is not necessary. So the other is to um, chew very, very well. When you chew very, very well, it makes it a lot easier for all of your digestive organs as they go down. When you chew very well, it creates a larger surface area for the enzymes to work on. Mm -hmm. And again, stress-free environment at the meal. If if there were if I for instance my my stepdaughter, Michael's daughter, she used to put almost more more of our vegetarian butter on her bread than bread. Mm. <laughs> and after the meal, when everything had settled, I went to her and I said, sweetheart, you're using a little too much. I said, I'd, I'd like you to use a little less. You know, she came to me later and she said, thank you. Thank you for not mentioning it at the meal table because there were brothers. And you know what brothers do? <laughs> they tease. Oh, yeah. So, so. So, you know, and if a child, that's why the, ch the children must know the rules. You know, you don't start the rules when you're at the table. And we had another rule, and that is you do not leave the table. Mm. And people say, how do you stop your children leaving the table? I said, it's very interesting. When they leave, they know they can't come back uh, for another five hours. <laughs> and also, uh, if you don't feed them all day long, they're hungry. Yeah. And if they're hungry, they'll eat. So it's it's just simple rules that you had at the table. And you always smile. Mm -hmm. So if the child is about to go and I say, sorry, sweetheart, uh, you can't leave unless you finish the meal, but then you can't come back. See, smile, smile, smile the whole time. Yeah. So I want to ask as far as you were, you were talking about um, hydrochloric acid. Um, yeah. I know there's many different 
health issues associated with low hydrochloric acid. And I know one of them can even be GERD. Um, yeah, that's, that, that is true. And uh, often called reflux or heartburn. And I have to say right now, there is no such thing as too much hydrochloric acid. If someone says to me, I have a very acid stomach, I say, praise God. Mm. <laughs> You'll be digesting your meal very quickly. But then I say, how do you know it's too much acid? Well, it keeps coming up. Well, the problem's not the acid. The problem is the little gate there. Mm -hmm. And so what is the main cause of GERD or reflux, heart disease? It's usually eating the, la the largest meal at the end of the day. So when you lie down to go to sleep, your meal is pushing against your um, cardiac sphincter, and that's a little sphincter at the top of the stomach. It's called cardiac because how close it is to the, to the heart muscle. And I know in Australia, and I think suspect also in the US, it's a very common habit is to eat largely at the end of the meal because what happens, a person's busy, busy, busy all day long. They eat late. They may be on the computer or watching television till late. They fall asleep. Oh, the alarm wakes them up. No time for breakfast. No time. And it's just like this all day long. You know, they don't feel like breakfast because actually there's probably a bit of last night's meal left in the stomach because digestion cannot stop or we die, but it slows down. So it's not the odd day this might happen. It's day after day after week after week, and it eventually exhausts your hydrochloric acid. The body bears long under abuse. Mm -hmm. So how can we... How can we turn this around? First of all, I'll show you how you can turn reflux around and then how you can boost your hydrochloric acid. So to, to, so to turn reflux around, you have your main meal at breakfast and lunch. And if you do eat at night, it's a light soup. Some people say, I eat light at night, I just have bread. I said, no, that's not light. <laughs> the, 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 the bread is heavy. And then some people can handle that at night. I know my boys who, you know, they're built like tanks. <laughs> they, they work physically hard. You know, they can, they can handle a bit more at night. That's why I say you're the doctor. If it works, do it. If it doesn't work, keep adjusting till it does. And no drinking with the meals. And also mealtime in a happy environment so that you're, as Ellen White says, cast off care and anxious thought when you sit to dine. That allows your digestive enzymes to work well. But that little valve at the top of the stomach is a muscle. And when it tightens, it opens. And when it's relaxed, it's closed. And the ultimate muscle relaxant is magnesium. And, of course, if someone's stressed, you know, that muscle will open. That's why relaxed be you know a relaxed environment at the meal table so we suggest people take 500 milligrams of um, magnesium citrate three times a day and even just before they go to bed one lady emailed me and she was not happy with me she said how can you how can you advise that that would cause diarrhea well uh i i acknowledge it might might cause diarrhea on some but we have not found that at our retreat so if it causes diarrhea, you stop. So again, you're the doctor then. And if you think, well, how can I take the magnesium? Well, just take one dose before you go to bed. And we found that that turns the 
the uh, reflex around. But another point that you added, Daniel, was low hydrochloric acid. When someone's got low hydrochloric acid, the, the common symptoms are bloating because the food's not getting digested. So it's sitting in this warm environment. It begins to ferment. And the fumes from the fermentation can come up and cause discomfort. And then the person thinks they've got too much acid, they get an antacid. Oh, <laughs> that, that will further compound the problem. One man said, I've been on antacids for 25 years. I said to him, well, it's not working, is it? <laughs> because if it was working, you'd heal and you wouldn't need them anymore. And what he did was he stopped them and he started taking cayenne pepper with his meal. You see, cayenne pepper, another misunderstood herb, it is not a nervous system stimulant. It's a blood stimulant. And so when people see the word stimulant, they think, oh, this is wrong, this is bad. Yes. No. Um, you see, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and anything that stimulates blood to any area of the body is going to stimulate healing. Mm -hmm. right. And cane pepper will wake anything up. <laughs> So just even a quarter or a half a teaspoon and a little water, you throw that down just before the meal and it stimulates the gastric glands to release more hydrochloric acid. Another thing that can be done is drinking the juice of a lemon. Mm -hmm. A lemon is acid where it should be, but when it's broken down in the body and into the tissues, it leaves a nice alkaline environment. Another one that you may not have cane pepper, you may not have um, have a lemon, just even a quarter of a cup of very hot water. And, of course, our mouth tells us how much heat our stomach can have. Mm -hmm. We're not going to drink boiling water. That will burn our mouth and burn our stomach, but just very hot water. What we do at Misty Mountain Health Retreat, we make a bitter tea, and that bitter tea has herbs like gentian, uh, dandelion, golden seal, a little bit of licorice, which is like an emollient on the stomach, and fresh ginger. And we give each of our guests a quarter of a cup of that hot just before the meal. So we're combining what Dr. Kellogg advised in a little bit of hot water with some bitter herbs. When those bitter herbs are in the mouth, they give a message to the brain and the brain release, starts releasing those gastric enzymes even almost before those bitter herbs reach the stomach. So there's some things you can do to boost your hydrochloric acid. We spent some time on the stomach and we learned some good information, but we want to jump into a hot topic that we see in a lot of heavy A lot of people are talking about it is leaky gut. Um, yeah. And how it ultimately affects the body associated with immune conditions, affects our brain and cognitive functions as well. So, Let's yeah. uh, dive in there and uh, share with us um, about leaky gut and what it is. So, now that that's a good comment. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> what is leaky gut? Our gastrointestinal tract is lined with a thick turf wall. Now, in her book, Gut and Psychology, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride, she terms it a thick turf wall. Now, what's turf made out of? Grass. Uh -huh. <laughs> what causes grass to grow? Microorganisms in the soil. And so that thick turf wall is made of 
a thick layer of microorganisms. The two main microorganisms in the gastrointestinal tract are lactobacillus acidophilus and bifidus bacterium. And the fact is that all other of the microorganisms in the gut come from those two main lactobacillus acidophilus bifidus bacterium. When a baby is in utero, the baby's gut is sterile. There are no microbes in the gut. And when a baby is born, it is literally showered with the mother's microorganisms. I was watching a documentary on this and it was interviewing an obstetrician. And this obstetrician was in his 70s. He said, we always thought God made a mistake putting the birth canal and the anus so close. Mm. He said the point that we used to give women enemas when they were in early label labor to make sure that everything was out of that other canal. He said, we now know it's a perfect design. Isn't that interesting? Because when the birth canal stretches open, the anus stretches open because they're very close. And so when the, when the air hits the baby's skin and they take their first breath, it's full of the microbes coming out of the anus. Notice what the obstetrician said. It's a perfect design. And they find, well, they have found that babies born via cesarean sections have more skin flora in their gut than gut flora. Mm. So we we were we were designed to to be born via the birth canal, and and some say the baby gets a massage as it comes into the world. So there are a few reasons why that is very important. I was reading the report of one obstetrician who was British. He said ninety percent of uh, um, cesarean sections are unnecessary. Oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> People have fear. They sort of jump in a little a little bit early. So it goes way back to there. In the first three days after the baby's born, there is no milk in the breast. But what is in the breast is something called colostrum. And that colostrum is incredibly rich and thick and incredibly fatty. Notice the importance of the fats. Mm -hmm. And it also contains nice amounts of the lactobacilluses, acidophiluses. So those first three days of life are very important for the development of the baby's immune system. In the small intestine and large intestine are Peyer's patches. This is P-E-Y-E-R-S. Peyer's patches are lymphatic organs, and they're almost like little... Oh, they're, they're, they're almost like a little finger. In, and it is in there that the, the lymphocytes, which are an important part of the, um, of the immune system, are quite active. So these, these payers patches have on, their, on the surface of them, they have sensors and they sense the good microbes and the bad microbes. Isn't God amazing the way he made the body? And so when it senses the pathogenic or the bad bacteria, then, then the white blood cells come along to engulf. And what is interesting, do you know, when they engulf the, the bacteria, the pathogenic bacteria, they release um, sodium, no, not sodium, um, hydrogen peroxide. 
Isn't that fascinating to kill to kill it off? And another white blood cell called monocytes, they're the cleanup team. Fascinating body that we live in. And so having colostrum in those first three days of life is a very important part of establishing the baby's immune system. Unfortunately, today, women are tested in pregnancy to see if they have strep B. In fact, a breath test can tell it. And if they do have strep B, they're put on antibiotics. Now, antibiotics, as one writer said, it's like dropping an atomic bomb in the gastrointestinal tract. It kills the good and the bad. So ladies ring me and they say, Barbara, I don't want to take this antibiotic. I said, I wouldn't either. I said, you know, I had six babies and I was never given a test of strep B. Now, what the mother is told is if she doesn't take the antibiotics, her baby might die or her baby might go blind. But I have to tell you something that my husband often says, I don't believe them. <laughs> Do you know, we need to have that in our mind. I don't believe them. And my daughter was talking to her midwife and she said, I've never seen such a thing. Never seen such a thing. I believe the body was designed to heal itself. And what happens when a woman takes antibiotics in pregnancy, then she gives a compromised um, gut flora to her baby. And so if a woman is concerned about this, I say to them, you can take something like olive leaf extract three times a day. You could take garlic three times a day, God's natural antibiotics that will only kill the bad. It's like those little sensors, the, the payers patches in our gut. They, have, they pick up the damaging ones, but they don't hurt the good ones. That's, that's working with the healing processes in, in, in the human body. I was talking to a farmer. And he said that if a babe, if a calf is born and the mother dies in, in calf birth, he said, we squeeze the teeth into the calf's mouth of the dead. She's only just dead. Because he said, we know if that calf does not get colostrum, we may as well put it down. Mm. Ah, so how much more important for human babies? Oh. Mm -hmm. You had a question, Jessica? Yes. Does the dose matter as far as taking olive leaf extract or garlic three times a day? You have um, usually, usually a teaspoon three times a day of the olive leaf extract, and you might take that for two weeks. I I have to tell you, garlic, pardon? and then a garlic, garlic, yeah, um, a bit two big cloves a day or three smaller cloves a day. And that can be crushed and mixed with avocado, very nice, or it can be crushed into a bowl of hot soup. Um, there are ways that to make it to make it palatable. But I have to tell you, I never had any tests when I was pregnant. And some people say, "Well, how you how do you know something might be wrong?" Well, my body will tell me. My body will tell me. Now I did start to lose a little. Um, a little blood when I was three months pregnant and my midwife said, Barbara, what are you doing? I said, I'm chopping wood. She said, stop chopping wood. <laughs> okay, I'll stop chopping the wood. <laughs> so, you know, the, I, I believe that, that, that our bodies will, will let us know if, if there is a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the body, God created our bodies so remarkable. So, oh yeah. 
So looking at leaky gut, I mean, it looks as if the antibiotics that we're taking is affecting our intestinal tract. That's right. And, and the leak actually happens in that gut flora, mm -hmm. that thick turf wall. And if you look at, I would say, every country I've been in, traditionally they had a cultured food as part of their diet. So if it's in Germany, it's sauerkraut, also the sourdough bread, uh, yogurts. If you're in Asia, it's miso. So these are all cultured foods, uh, not, you know, yogurt, kefir, some other ones, and they were used traditionally to preserve, but it's not, a, but the preservation process, um, you know, for the winter months, because, you know, in the old days, they went to supermarkets like today, um, it creates lactobacillus acidophilus. And so when you're eating that food, you're eating those cultured foods, and that helps to maintain that healthy gut flora. So then the question is, well, what would kill off the gut flora? We mentioned a big one, which is antibiotics. I'm not against antibiotics. A human being should probably only have at least two in a lifetime. And some, some humans should go through without ever having. It should be, should be kept for life-saving. Mm -hmm. And yet if we know how the body works and we know what to do when there's an injury, you know, we can even prevent getting to having to have life-saving. But the World Health Organization have stated that the biggest health care um, health crisis they believe in the world today is the overuse of antibiotics because people are becoming immune mm -hmm. so when they are used for the life-saving they're, they're actually not working yeah, yeah so that's the world health organization mm -hmm. <laughs> so doctors are being pressed please stop prescribing so many antibiotics and they're one of the biggest causes of a depletion in in your gut flora other drugs can deplete it, statin drugs, which are your cholesterol-lowering medication. That's another myth that we could spend a little bit of time talking about if we had time, maybe another session. Um, it's never been proven that cholesterol causes heart disease. Isn't that incredible? And the amount of people over the age of 50 who are put on cholesterol-lowering medication, that wipes up gut flora. Not another big deception. Mm -hmm. What also long-term painkiller use also can wipe out gut flora. Refined sugar can wipe out gut flora. So these are some of the contributing factors to a depletion in the gut flora. So this is associated with then the leaky gut. And I know yeah. uh, you have the junctures within the intestines. Uh, you have a space forming and micromolecules can get through, which then can enter the blood supply, um, yeah, trigger autoimmune conditions. I know a large percentage of um, certain, I believe, neurotransmitters are produced in the gut. And can you share with us how poor gut health can ultimately affect the immune system? Oh, uh, it, it absolutely can affect the immune system. And a lot has to do with again with this with this thick turf wall, this this um, gut flora. Mm -hmm. And what Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride she shows something very interesting. 
You see, that gut flora is responsible for the final breakdown of certain nutrients, which is your B vitamins. It's responsible for the absorption of the nutrients out of the gut and into the blood. It protects the blood against harmful pathogens. So when you've got this leak, it's exactly what you just described, Daniel. You've got substances getting into the blood, which God never designed that they be in there. And then that is one of the triggers for auto, autoimmune problems happening. Is that gut flora nourishes the cells that line the gastrointestinal tract. Mm -hmm. And if those cells are nourished, they effectively can block things like, for instance, when, when uh, wheat breaks down, it breaks down to glutomorphine. And those healthy cells can knock off the morphine. But if the cell's not getting nourishment, the morphine can't get knocked off. The morphine gets into the blood and it goes to the opiate receptor sites in the brain. So, you know, Natasha Campbell's book, she calls it Gut and Psychology. We're talking about the brain here. And there's another book by a, neuro a neurologist, Dr. David Pearl Mutter, called grain brain again showing how the wheat can do this now the other food is is dairy so when dairy breaks down it breaks down to caseomorphine so the same thing now dr uh, walter Veith, he has an interesting presentation called utterly amazing and in his presentation he shows there are definitely different cultures that have had dairy in their heritage and they have the enzymes that can can break it down for instance the Maasai but other Africans not mm -hmm. so uh, it's another one is you know different people respond in different ways much depends on on their heritage and the immune system is directly affected when the gut flora is compromised Majority of your immune cells actually reside in the gut. Is that correct? The yes, they do, and particularly the uh, payas patches. Back to the payas patches, the, the the lymphocytes. So the lymphocytes is one of the white blood cells, and it's particularly active in the lymphatic system. Our tonsils and our payas patches are both probably the largest lymphatic organs in the body, and the and to cut out the, the tonsils is one of the craziest operations that have been done. There are many crazy ones that have been done. You've, you've now lost your watchman at the gate. So instead of just cutting them out, you find out why is that lymphatic vessel so swollen all the time. It's swollen all the time because it's actually saying something's wrong here. So if you shoot the watchman at the gate, now you haven't got that loud voice yelling at you all day, but then, of course, the enemy comes in. Yeah. And so the, yeah, the payers patches, they work with the uh, microbes in the gut. They also uh, have those resident lymphatics, uh, your white blood cells in there. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that we can do? And I think of myself personally, because I have some intestinal issues that I always deal with, um, either natural remedies um, certain foods that we can incorporate to produce optimal gut health. And to add, yeah. some people go about life with many years or decades thinking that you know runny stool is, is just normal, or 
or a little right. rectal bleeding is is just their baseline, or the bloating is um, something that is normal for them and they just have that, to live with. However, those that, are are problematic true. And, and can lead to worse symptoms if not dealt with. So, yeah, that is true. That and I say to people, you know, life should be good. Mm -hmm. God meant us to have a very happy, very healthy life. Three John, yeah. one two. Beloved, yeah. I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper, be in health, even as thy soul prospers. And you're right; it's almost like gradualism. It just sleep. It, it just creeps up so slowly, and the person begins to think, "This is me." Mm -hmm. And we have so many guests. You know, they email me a couple of weeks later and say, "I." I I can't believe how good I feel. Like you know, it, I still feel good because these things have crept up on them. When you're young, your body works well, and you take it for granted. Mm -hmm. But everything you do in your twenties is revealed in your forties, <laughs> and everything you do in your forties is revealed in your seventies. It it certainly uh, it certainly does creep up, and. That's why I mentioned the stomach because what happens in the stomach affects the whole of the gastrointestinal tract all the way down. That it's important to boost that that hydrochloric acid. Now, in Psalm one hundred and four, verse fourteen, the Bible says that God gave herbs for the surface of man. Now, I did mention a couple of herbs there; those bitter herbs, and the old saying, "Bitter to the mouth, sweet to the stomach; sweet to the mouth, bitter to the stomach." But coming down to the colon, there are some herbs that coat, soothe and heal the lining of the gastrointestinal tract. And so while the person is implementing all the principles to, to help revive that gut, and when we speak about the laws of health, the third law is the law of temperance, meaning you've you got to stop what's causing it because if you don't turn the tap off, you're still going to be mopping up in the other corner. If you don't, if you don't stop the cause, you, you will never have a cure. So the things that harm must stop. And the two herbs are one is aloe vera. Mm -hmm. Now, if you pull your lip down and look at the lining of your lip, it's sort of a bit slimy. Well, that's the whole of the gastrointestinal tract. And aloe vera is just like that. So aloe vera can be taken to coat, soothe and heal the lining of the gut. And the other herb, it's an American herb. It's the powdered bark of the slippery elm tree. And when you put water with that, it goes a little thick and gooey too, which is perfect for the lining of the gastrointestinal tract. So they can come in and help whenever there's inflammation. So probably the diseases particularly of the colon that are inflamed would be gastritis, would be um, colitis, Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome. These are all diseases of, of probably... The different names are because of different parts of the gastrointestinal tract, but the same remedies will, will heal them all. And there are some foods that are particularly irritating if the gut is inflamed. Mm -hmm. But before I define them, I just want to say a little bit more about aloe vera and slippery elm. They both contain growth stimulants. Mm. And a growth stimulant is something that, stimulates rapid new growth. So both 
aloe vera and slippery elm contain the growth stimulants. Now, the cells that line the gastrointestinal tract, they're remade every three to five days. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal, isn't it? And so it should not take long to heal the gut. <laughs> now, yes, our cells get into a habit, and that's where the herbs and the drastic change in lifetime, in lifestyle, can, can actually turn the corner and get those, those cells into a better, into a better habit. So take, and we would even suggest they those herbs, you know, one or the other, no need to take both of them um, before each meal and also just before bed. You take them just before the bed, they're coaching, soothing, healing the lining of the gut. So what are the foods that irritate? I call them the five common allergens. Not everyone's very happy about this list and you'll see why. <laughs> one is dairy. Another one is wheat. And I've had a lot of criticism on this. People say, Barbara, Jesus said he's the bread of life. I said, he is the bread of life. Amen. But the bread he's referring to is not the bread we have today. And in the book Temperance, second chapter, Ellen White gives a, gives a story about Satan and his angels looking at how they can bring the most misery to humans, and Satan himself comes up with a plan. He's going to change the fruit of the vine, and we know what alcohol has done. Mm -hmm. Then there's a comma, wheat and other foods. Mm -hmm. So wheat is particularly defined. Now, this was what written in the mid-1800s, and in the mid-1900s, the wheat was changed. So that was said 100 years before the wheat was actually changed. So in the 1950s, it went through intensive crossbreeding. It created a, uh, a plant with a high yield of grain, which the farmers were very happy about. And by the 1990s, this, this grain was worldwide and, and it had made drastic changes in the starch structure and the gluten structure. In fact, it was rushed through without any um, safety studies. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, with something that happened over the last couple of years? And I'll, I'll say no word on that because that'll cause this little video clip to be taken down. <laughs> safety studies, you know, it takes a long time to do safety studies. Mm-hmm. We're only just now seeing the full effect. Mm-hmm. And you can get a wheat that has not been hybridized. They're often called ancient grains. So you've got um, Inkenhorn mm-hmm. and Spelt. So these ancient grains are usually acceptable because the structure has not been changed. So let's go back to the five common allergens, dairy, wheat, oats. And a lot of people are confronted with that one because, oh, everyone loves their granola for breakfast or their oat porridge. Mm -hmm. Has that been changed? No, it hasn't. But what has been changed is the way it's prepared. You see, the Scottish love their oats. They've been eating oats for centuries. They would soak it all day and cook it slowly overnight on the fuel stove and what that process does is it takes away all the inflammatory markers they're they're called lectins Mm -hmm. so lectins are taken away with a long slow soaking and a long slow overnight cooking so again the change in the oats has been the way the way they cook and a lot of some people even eat raw oats. You ask them how they feel two hours after the meal, they'll be bloated. 
<laughs> because the human body cannot digest raw grain. We must slowly cook raw grain. And we're very thankful for Agatha Thrash for the blowing the whistle on this one. She says, long, slow cooking is necessary to, to break down the starch granules. Raw food's important. I love raw food. I aim for 50-50 in my meals because raw will deliver what cooked won't and cooked will deliver what raw won't, but not raw grains. Grains need long, slow cooking to make them digestible. So we've got uh, dairy, wheat, oats, peanuts. Mm. And the problem with peanuts is they're commonly contaminated with mould. And in his book, China Study, Dr... Colin Campbell, he shows very clearly in there. For people that love peanut butter, I say, try almond butter. In fact, here in Germany, they have hazelnut butter. <laughs> try, and in Australia, we even have macadamia butter. So there's, there's lots of alternates there. And the last one is refined sugar. Mm -hmm. I'm not referring to maple syrup and raw honey. But those five allergens are particularly irritating if there is inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract. And so if someone wants to heal from, say, leaky gut or Crohn's disease, any of those diseases of inflammation, those foods must be stopped. Now, I also issue a warning here. It can take two months before you see a response. And so it's important for people to, to know that. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> two months. Well, it's, it's interesting. So I can eat a slice of bread. Go on, go on. So I can eat a slice of bread. It'll be out of my body in 24 hours, but the effect can remain for, for sometimes two months. And so there's a little bit of a time there. And in Galatians 6 verse 9, the Bible says, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. So there's a time factor. Stop those foods, implement the, the herbs, start to have breaks between the meals. And also castoral compresses applied to the abdomen. Mm -hmm. So the castoral compresses applied to the abdomen. Castoral penetrates very deep and it can help. I think we've had a couple of breaks then, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. You know? That's okay. So we're there. If, if I need to repeat, please ask me. <laughs> yeah. You know, I find it interesting because I know Ellen White, she talks about how our diet should be progressive. Um, and I hear quite a few individuals say, well, you know, if we just adhere to the original diet that God had given us, we will be completely fine. But some of the things I hear you sharing is that our food supply is now so tainted from what it originally was and from what God originally designed in the beginning. Ab absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, yeah, we, we need to not only look at the food we eat and to make sure it's organic and in its natural state, but we also need to know how to, how to prepare it. Mm -hmm. And lectins are an inflammatory marker and they're high in legumes. But if you soak your legumes, well, rinse your legumes, either slow cook them or pressure cook them, no lectins. Yeah. So there is a voice out there that says we shouldn't be eating lectins, we shouldn't be having legumes, we shouldn't be having this. But, you know, God, God made them and God said that in the fruits, vegetables, nuts, grains, legumes is everything that we need 
So we need to go back and look at, well, how are we preparing them? How are they being grown? Mm -hmm. um, and we will find that that's often the key. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Um, as we wrap up here, are there any last words you would like to share with us or the audience um, as we conclude today? Yes, I would like to encourage people to have faith in their bodies mm -hmm. and faith in the great God of heaven that gave us these bodies with their inbuilt ability to heal themselves. Yeah. And if they're not healing, maybe we need to make some adjustments. And if they're not healing, maybe we need to give it a little bit of time. Because it may have taken 20 years to get into this situation. It won't take 20 years to undo, but it might take one or two years. And God says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. God wants us to thank him for where we are, what we are, and what we have right today. Mm -hmm. And it may not be perfect, but he's the one that is able to bless our efforts to get a healthier body. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, it just it really makes me think of uh, one of the things we'll always share with our guests in our Lifestyle Center, Bella Vida, is simplicity, change, and responsibility as well. Oh, okay. yeah. Whatever, oh, yeah. Whatever type of approach you're going to start, keep it simple. Sometimes we make it too yeah. complex, you know? That's true. But That's change, true. But, you know, change the wrong habits implement yeah. new healthy habits but ultimately we are the ones responsible you know that's right so many that's times right. so many times we'll cast blame on somebody else and we don't want that's to right. you know take control of our our um poor choices within our life that has caused the state that we're in today you know so and and a verse that i often use to help people Acts 17, 13, that God winks at our ignorance, so should we. Mm -hmm. You know, most people do the best they know. But then I say, sorry, you're not ignorant anymore. <laughs> That's true. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for, you know, giving us this time to talk with you and for you to share with our audience on how we can better our gut health, how ultimately we could better our immune system and better our overall health as well. So I appreciate the information that you have shared with us. And we really appreciate that work that you are doing to just spread help and, you know, um, good news to the world on how we can live a healthier, better, more abundant life. Thank you. It's my, it's my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in. And we hope you have been motivated by this show. To connect with us and receive more information, you can follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and modernmana.org. See you next time.